Welcome to another episode of Chris Reed's book. Welcome back to another episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for subscribing. This is episode... Let me check. I think this is episode 10 of Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars. Uh, Checking my files. It should be episode 10 because we did chapters 9 and 10 last week. So this would be chapter 11, episode 10. I'm still working on a new introduction to the book, but... Once I get that, I will put it out here. Um, This week, this chapter, chapter 11, Discovery of Success, deals with our first introduction of really getting what is um, ATMO together, what is the core people of the TDF who we've heard about, the core group of NAR Defense. Uh, We've heard about... James, Adam, uh, Eric, and uh, Melinda before, and they work at uh, NAR, NAR Defense. But now we're also going to start to see how these other four characters uh, fit in with this first group of four. I'm going to do my best to do different voices for everybody. Uh, I say I'm going to do my best because I'm not sure how that's going to turn out. We'll see. I I did a little recon on my own chapter and tried some things, but we will see how that turns out as we go along because there's probably eight different voices in here, and that's not even getting into people like Claire. I think it's Claire. I changed her name a couple times during the writing of the stories. Uh, Andre and all of them. But we do see Meng come back into the picture in this episode. We see uh, the primary four, Adam, Eric, James, and Melinda, as well as another one or two people who we might see come back again throughout the course of the book. So um, before I get into this, just again to remind Everybody, if this is your first episode, I encourage you to go back and download either the MP3s of the previous episodes, which are available on my website, www.narclaninc.com. That's www.narclaninc.com. Or you can head over to your favorite podcast player and get the episodes there. Just search for Chris Reed's book or for my name, Chris Pullman. That's P-O-H-L-M-A-N. You can find Chris Reed's book there and subscribe and be updated whenever I record a new episode like I'm doing right now. And again, thank you for connecting with me on my social media places such as Facebook, such as Twitter. I need to get better at using Twitter, but I am trying to... Uh, use Facebook as my writer profile a little bit more. So that is linked out on my website as well. Uh, With that, let's get into the episode. This should be episode 10, chapter 11 of Mr. and Deceit from Earth to Mars, otherwise known as Chaos's Beginning. The title of this chapter, Discovery of Success. Meng, you old dog. I exclaimed, shaking his hand. How have things been? Things have been okay. Business is good, and I'm doing well, Meng replied, returning a firm handshake. James, old friend, how's life? Not bad, James said in his typically understated way, shaking Meng's hand. Melinda, lovely as ever, Meng said as he pulled Melinda into a gentle embrace. You old snake charmer. Now I remember why all the women at the project called you Trapper. Good to see you again, Mengi, Melinda said, a smirk in her voice. Watch it, Meng said as he pulled away from the embrace, a smile on his face. You know I never liked either of those ridiculous nicknames. 
And Adam, how have you been, my man? Meng grasped Adam's hand, pulling him into a quick bro brace. Not too bad, dude. Getting by. Heard about some trouble off of Africa's northeast coast. Something about the UN patrols coming across a boat of pirates all tied up with zip ties. Said they'd been... How is it phrased? Adam said as he pretended to search his memory for the answer. Ah, yes. That they had been brutally attacked by four Americans while conducting business with the ship's crew. You wouldn't happen to know those four Americans, would you? Meng's face took on a mock air of seriousness as he said, I cannot confirm nor deny involvement with such an incident, but am sure I have no idea what you're talking about. Finishing with a grin and a wink. So, my friends, is there somewhere we could go to talk that would be a, a bit more comfortable than standing and a, perhaps a bit more private? Yeah, sure. The company's conference room shouldn't be in use today, right? James said, turning toward the receptionist, Jean, for confirmation. Right, James. The DOD meeting isn't for another two days, and nothing's on the book until then. DOD? Meng said, bit of a risk considering your background, isn't it? Not at all. Not when all the generals from back then have been promoted out of the pool of ones we'd be talking to. Made sure of that before we put in the bid, James commented slyly, leading the way towards what passed for the second floor where the conference room was. Having grown enough over the years to actually begin selling products under our own company, we had expanded the facilities from the original industrial drab steel frame and siding building where we had started out. Now our company's research wing took up twice the space of the original building, with wings perpendicular to each other. The fabrication facility went off the other way from our original building and gave our complex its somewhat distinctive T-shape. The atrium had been built in the best practices of medieval architecture with modern updates. Height and light provided by plasteel framework, our own blend, and floor-to-ceiling transparent walls, another proprietary material we had perfected. It gave the atrium at once an industrial yet welcoming feel. Clean, precise, measured, and purposeful. Going up the wide, rounded staircase to the conference room and attached wraparound balcony, one had a view over the entire complex, even the on-campus apartments tucked into the woods toward the back of the property. Nice place you have here, James, Meng commented as we climbed the stairs. A bit more civilian than the project's facilities, yet tastefully spartan. Most of this new stuff, James said, holding open the conference room doors while motioning outside through the wall windows, was built using materials we had invented much stronger than conventional materials while also being vastly more energy efficient. Even with the appearance of windows all over, those walls have the lowest heat transfer rate of any material in the market today. Allows us to stick more profits back into R&D instead of heating costs, James finished, entering after me and letting the door swing close behind him. We have a fully stocked bar up here. Get you anything, Meng? Sure, Johnny Walker on the rocks. Three fingers, if you would. So, began Adam, half sitting on the room's sizable table. What brings you down our way? I should think that you'd have better things to do with your time than come here personally to talk shop. Well, not that I don't, but you really aren't too far off the mark. James handed Meng his scotch, sitting down next to Melinda. We had been researching companies for equipment. Specialty equipment. I think you, at least, he pointed to Adam with his drink hand, would understand why, if not all of you. Salud, he said to James, taking a sip. Finest kind. You're in the anti-pirate, anti-terrorist business, I commented from my seat opposite James, and if you're sticking with a four-person crew, means you need the best equipment. That, at face value, is dead on, Meng responded, circling the table while admiring the view outside. But there's more to it than that. And that more is why I'm here. He stopped his pacing, facing toward the company's entrance drive. What do you think that more might be, Melinda? Meng asking Melinda shocked us all a bit. We assumed Meng's more had something to do with a larger or more involved operation. Adam was always the one who kept current as far as events in the world go. Neither James nor I were nearly as politically centered as Adam, and 
Melinda even less so. So to ask her about strategic reasoning was tantamount to asking a car mechanic about the inner workings of a jump jet. Yet Meng's question hung in the air, clearly spoken, and as clearly directed only at Melinda. After trying to discern some meaning from James from Meng's look, James turned to gaze at Melinda, not really expecting her to have an answer to Meng's question. He was at least looking for a reason why he'd asked her. I... Why should I... Melinda began, looking around to us and shrugging her shoulders. I don't know. You may not personally know, Melinda, but you know the answer is there, Meng said in a taunting tone. We again looked to Melinda, who simply looked to each of us in turn. Think about it. You can feel that you should know the answer. We kept looking to Melinda, who suddenly seemed uncomfortable, looking as though she'd been caught with her hand in the cookie jar. You feel like you should know? But no, you shouldn't. You want more information. The facts. Yet know all you need for knowing is already within reach. So tell me why I'm here, Meng repeated. It was more than a request, yet less than a demand. It was an order. Search your mind, and within it find the vault of truth. Open the vault, and within it find a package. Open the package, and within it find what you seek. Meng seemed to chant from memory. Meng, what do you mean that she should... James began, stopping when Melinda placed her hand on his arm. A look, both quizzical and introspective, lived on her face. Meng turned his head enough for us to see that he was smiling. That's it. Within the mind, the vault. Within the vault, the package. Within the package, knowledge. He slowly brought his glass toward his mouth. Just before he took a drink, he paused as Melinda said, The project... worked? Within knowledge, understanding, Meg said, taking a drink, then clasping the drink behind him and turning to face us. The project worked. Of course it worked, Adam said, until it failed. Those test marines exhibited superhuman abilities for eight missions before they disappeared. And because of the government's over-reliance on a technology, on abilities we said wouldn't last, there are now six more dead marines on this earth. Meng's smile, though, betrayed a hidden knowledge. No, Adam, you're wrong. For them, unfortunately, it worked until it failed, Meng admitted with a head bob. But as far as the actual goal of the project, that succeeded. Isn't that right, Melinda? He snapped his gaze to her with the intensity of a soldier in combat. She doesn't know, James said but was again interrupted by Melinda's touch as she rose to stand beside him. It worked, she said matter-of-factly, then, In us? It worked in us, Meng echoed back confidently. There's something in that statement that's a game-changer if it's true, isn't it? Meng asked, all of us now standing. It means that what all of you sought to do and the methods you used were valid. It means that the literal superhuman is possible. And more than that, it means that all this, Meng motioned around at our defense, is now caught in the shadow of an even greater achievement, a potentially more powerful weapon than any you'd yet conceived, and all still alive and doing well inside eight very specific humans. Meng let his words hang as he looked at each of us. Then, I'm going to go, for now. But I'll be back in three days, after, with a lilt in his voice, your little meeting with the DOD. I think you'll find it less than the rewarding experience you had hoped for. Until then, Meng said, finishing his drink, setting on the table. You four stay and talk he said, turning and walking toward the conference room doors. I'll show myself out. None of us responded. We couldn't. The implication of what Meng had said was earth-shaking for us, of what Melinda had said. The thought must have occurred to both James and I at the same time. He turned to Melinda. 
Hun, what? Just now. James managed, gesturing over his shoulder to where Meng had been standing. I'm not sure, Melinda said, staring into James's eyes. Still extant on her face was confusion coupled with some fear. What he said, how he said it. It's something that I came up with once in grad school. Whenever I felt I was close to an answer but was having trouble finding it, I'd chant it in my head to help me focus. I've never told anyone that. But how he said it. It was dead on, cadence and all. Melinda momentarily closed her eyes, shaking her head as though to clear it. James reached for her and held her arms, and she his, and she continued. But him saying it. Something became clear. But not like usual. When I find an answer to a problem, it always feels like it came from, you know, she said, sweeping her gaze to all of us briefly, from inside, from me. This, this felt like, her brow furrowed in further confusion. Like what? What did it feel like? James said as he hunched over, forcing his eyes to meet hers even as her head was now downturned. It felt like it had come from Meng, Melinda managed. She wasn't making an offhand remark. She literally meant that the knowledge that the nanites had worked and were still working had come from Meng's mind rather than hers. But how could he know even if it was true, I asked. James stared into Melinda's eyes, exchanging information with her as only those who know each other the most intimately can. The twitch of an eye, slowly showing deep consternation, the slight tightening grip of a hand, reassurance. There's only one way, at least, to know if he was giving us a line or not, Adam said, staring toward the company driveway. It'd be as simple as a blood test, he added, turning to face us. We all knew the truth of the statement. If we had yet active nanites within us, they would be visible in a blood sample, clear as day. My lab has all the equipment we'd need, I offered. Everyone nodded in agreement. We silently walked out of the conference room, down the stairs, past Jean at the reception desk, giving her only the slightest nod. Your lab is clear, Eric, she said. We stopped. Pardon? I asked. The gentleman you were meeting with? As he was leaving, he said that you asked him to tell me to make sure your lab wasn't in use, that you needed it for something. I had Charlie go and organize your research. He took it down to Lab H. Meng had told her we'd need the lab? Had he anticipated this would be our next step? He also left this, Jean said, handing me a business card. It read simply, Tactical Assistance Organization with We'll be in touch, handwritten at the bottom. Yeah, okay. Thanks, Jean. I took the card, and we continued for my lab. Thinking as I went, it occurred to me that, first of all, what I had been working on was at a point where it would require the attention of a full team, a task my lab wasn't designed for, but also that we wouldn't want anyone intruding on what we were doing. Having an active research project along us could bring in other company scientists or assistants. Meng had done us a favor and cleared the way for our test to be done in secret. Melinda, realizing there was something different going on with her, volunteered to go first. We took a sample of her blood, put it on a slide and under the microscope. On the wall display, after magnifying several times, we saw what we had both hoped would be and wanted there not to be. Nanites. Measuring a mere one-twentieth the size of red blood cells, our tiny machines still showed up under magnification. James, Adam, and I made up slides as well after seeing the truth of the matter before us. One by one, we put our blood under the scope and each time found a small battalion of nanites floating around on the slide. How? asked Adam, breathless. That indeed was the question of the hour. The marines, the ones who were targeted to bond with the nanites, lost what enhanced abilities they had been granted by the hive-mind nanomachines. Our calculations, James began pausing. We were sure of them, weren't we? 
sure enough, I said, at least to go ahead with the live testing. So were our calculations off? Melinda asked. Containment was breached, so we really don't know, Adam replied. Yeah, containment was breached, said James, beginning to pace. But there's something else there. We have viable nanites swimming around inside us. My stomach involuntarily constricted a bit at the thought. Those in the marines failed. However, we were bonded to the critters in the true answer to the equation. He was right, of course. Isn't it a bit impractical, though, to blow up another lab facility to get the correct levels? Adam asked, tongue-in-cheek. We smiled at that. Perhaps a bit, James said through a smile. But the message is clear at this point. Somehow the bonding worked on us. The concept worked. That feeling of cold spreading over my body and down in my lungs, a, a sensation still painfully vivid in my memory, now made sense. It was the nanites bonding with us, their hosts. The nanite slurry somehow adapted to the environmental factors and, more or less, crawled along my, our, bodies until they found the best opening by which to form a bond. Our mouths. So, I began, why haven't we exhibited any enhanced abilities yet? Maybe we have been and just didn't realize it, James commented, his pacing speeding up. I mean, all of our research has been going at a lightning pace, hasn't it? Part of what we sought to enhance was intellectual capabilities in general, innate abilities specifically. So what do you think these enhanced innate abilities look like? asked Adam. I'm thinking, aside from being unique, that's something we each have to figure out for ourselves. Basically, I said. Meng must know what his gifted ability is already, said Melinda. It would make sense, wouldn't it? I mean, this must have been his plan, to get us to realize not only that our nanite bonding had worked, but also that we had powers beyond normal humans, the very gifts we sought to imbue the marines with in order to make them into super soldiers. He has to know, as do the others he works with. So what? Are we hoping he can help... Clue us into what we should be able to do? Adam asked. Or are we thinking that each of us has something so unique that we're just going to have to poke around in the dark until a light flips on? Since all the nanites have the same base code, there has to be a common inroute as to what we now possess. Once we know the path, it should be easy to follow, no matter the individual, James said, halting his course. But perhaps a more important question for now is whether or not we can take what we know, coupled with what's inside of us, and reverse engineer a duplicate, successful process for further nanetic bonding. James had a valid point. While eight people with enhanced abilities represented a force to be reasoned with, a whole company of them could be nearly unstoppable in its own right. Having programmed the nanites to integrate with the host's nervous system and protect the host, it was possible the nanites could adapt to serve a multitude of unintended and unimaginable functions beyond simply enhanced human bonding. Well, I said, we were looking for a new project, and it will apparently be three days until Meng comes back, so why not start taking a look at this? How would we go about it? Adam asked. The variables and equations are already too complex for most people to understand. To bring together a team cold on this would be nearly impossible in a short time frame. For quickest results, it has to be us. Only us. But pulling us all off our main projects would certainly raise a few eyebrows, Melinda commented. Exactly what I was thinking, Adam said, rubbing his head a bit while continuing. If we want to jumpstart this thing, we're going to have to make it a white project completely off the books. It'll mean long nights and little sleep, especially until Meng gets back. Maybe longer. We will eventually have to start bringing more people in on the research, I said. They could begin with some of the base research, like trying to extract nanites from a blood sample and replicate them, Melinda said. It would advance them toward a position where they would, could, slowly be exposed to the theory and equations behind the nanite process. 
just what I was thinking, I commented, my head aching a bit suddenly. But for now, I agree with Adam. We need to focus on some quick analysis. James and I can take on the biological end. I can put time into analyzing the conditions and data we still have from that night, Adam offered. Melinda added, and I can start looking at the nanites themselves. Begin running some base tests to see how they've adapted to the symbiosis and what new unexpected traits they might be exhibiting. Again, though, how do we cover our absences with the rest of the staff? Adam asked. Simple, said James, playing with his bottom lip. We have the DOD people coming in two days. We're simply putting extra time into our presentation for them. It would be, after all, the largest contract we ever managed to land. Speaking of that, are the presentations ready? I asked. Of course. Been done for a week, James replied with a wry grin, waving off the notion that they were anything but ready. Okay, sounds like we have a plan. So who's giving blood for the greater good? I asked. I haven't in a while, James said. I can spare some. A thought occurred to me that needed to be addressed later. How would nanites and donated blood react in the body of a new host? Such a thought, though, was then transitory in the excitement of the moment and the multitude of possibilities that it held. Adam headed off to his office to begin work on the data analysis. Once we had a pint of James's blood, we split it in half. One half for Melinda's use and one for ours. We didn't expect any groundbreaking realizations in the time we had. However, we did have high hopes for the future in general. After all, the tech had found a way to work. All we had to do now was figure out what that way was. Not intending to, we all found ourselves staying up through that first night working. About 1 a.m., we were gathered in the company's kitchen break area for some liquid caffeine by way of coffee. I've got to say, Adam began, it's going better than I thought it would. Still rough trying to reacquaint myself with those formulas. As an aside, what were we thinking with those? I mean, there's just so much room for error. We were fighting time, I replied, and we're young and stupid enough that we thought we could account for the possible errors on the fly. Learned our lesson, huh? I asked, sipping tentatively from the mug in my hands. Still a bit hot. Yeah, we did, James piped in. See any way to shore up what we had done? I found a few places already that we may be able to do something with, yeah. Okay. Melinda? <sighs> Melinda replied, James having caught her mid-sip. <clears throat> from the data we still have from the original Nanite programming, I was able to initiate a comparison link and download their current run parameters. There's a lot to sift through, a lot we didn't program. To an extent, that shouldn't come as a surprise after the years that their adaptive code has been running unchecked. Because of the Awesome's Razor protocol, it's all functional, best I can tell. Honestly, though, there are a lot of new algorithms to sift through. Fair enough. What Eric and I have found so far is about the same. Not much. From some radio scans we've run, it seems our bodies, specifically Eric's, is supersaturated with the buggers. For each body cell, there's a number, a large number of nanites. In some of the remote regions of the body, there almost seem to be stores of inactive nanites. Inactive, queried Adam. Yeah, I replied. Not deactive or dead, but simply inactive. Maybe hibernating is a better way to describe it. Where they aren't dense enough to appear like a metal wall on an x-ray. They are darn near dense enough to almost have shorted out our machine while taking the x-rays thanks to the feedback. We're not sure the purpose of those hibernated stores yet. Maybe it'll be in their code. What we do know is that I'm in 150% good health. HDL and LDL cholesterol levels are ideal. No plaque showing up on the screens. Kidney liver functions are showing at least 50% above perfect. And of course, the fact that none of us wear glasses or contacts. Well, that's part of the nanitic effect too, we think. We found traces by radio refraction in my vitreous humor, cornea, everything. If my body's typical, 
and there's not a place in any of our bodies that doesn't have a high concentrations of nanites in it. And watch this. I took out my pocket knife, flipped it open, and slid it across my palm. James calmly sipped his coffee, but Adam and Melinda jumped. What's wrong with you? Melinda asked in a demanding and scared tone. Just sit down and watch, I said calmly. Adam, who had almost dove across one of the other tables in the kitchen for anything to use to staunch the flow of blood, stared at my hand, slowly creeping back to his seat with paper toweling in tow, the roll still on the kitchen top counter holder. Almost instantly, the wound closed itself. Even the blood that had seeped out retracted, leaving no trace that I had done anything to my hand. That was just a surface wound, of course. Neither of us was crazy enough to try a penetrating wound yet. Doesn't hurt. No tightness, I said, flexing and closing my hand, putting the blade away after closing it. Melinda reached over and grabbed my hand, feeling for a wound or whatever contraption I'd used to make it look so real. This isn't one of your stupid magic tricks, is it? She said, glowering at me. James smiled, saying just over the top of his cup, That's what I asked at first, too. Then I tried it. Same result. It's real. After a pause, Melinda said, Why would you even try that? Staring unbelievingly at James, her hand still working mine. Hey, Mel? Uh, thanks for the hand massage and all, but... I said, trailing off. Melinda looked down at my hand and hers and stopped, jerking her hands away from mine. So, what we know for sure, James said, resting his neck and jaw on his left hand, swirling the remaining coffee in his cup, is that there's a lot we don't know. We made the clock, wound it, and then set it to running without realizing it, and now we're trying to figure out how it's still running. That's the size of it, Adam affirmed. We sat there for a few moments in silence. We were staring off into space, each of us in his or her own thoughts. Thought, hypothesis, conjectures were all flying through our heads, trying to form some coherent picture. The best any of our minds could do, though, was an apprentice's impressionist painting. Do we just want to call it a night? Adam finally said, searching his second cup of coffee with one eye for where it had all gone. I don't think I could sleep, even as tired as I am, I said. I'm sure these two could find something to tire themselves out doing, though, motioning with my likewise empty cup. Melinda slapped my bicep with, thankfully, the hand that didn't have a coffee cup in it. No, we couldn't, countered James. We're married. Melinda blushed after gawking and kicking James under the table. We all laughed. This stuff really ain't helping, though. I said, holding up my entirely too empty mug. Yeah, let's just get back to it, James said, getting up. The pep talk and staff meeting was over. We headed back to our labs and worked through the next day and a half, stopping only for the occasional meal and then to get ready for our meeting with the DOD brass. If we could sell these government reps on our company and its products, it would mean another company expansion, possibly even a doubling of the R&D capabilities of our defense. And, depending on what Meng and his people were really after, such an expansion could help serve a double purpose. We cleaned ourselves up, doing our best to hide the dark circles and bags under our eyes, beginning to form after two sleepless nights of work. We were all a bit nervous. To try and get in bed with the DoD after our involvement at Project Plymouth was still a substantial risk. However, after a bit of snooping, we had found the extent to which we had been redacted from history. As far as anyone in the government was concerned, we had never worked for or with them a day in our lives. That worked in our favor as the DoD reps weren't likely to ask too many questions about the mutual hole in our lives. If they did, we had come up with a cover story that would have worked sufficiently well. We were conducting research for a private South American firm that had since been absorbed by the Venezuelan government by order of their president. All our research had been seized, and any record of American scientists' involvement would have been suppressed. A company had, in fact, been absorbed by the government at the proper time, a company doing unknown research. It fit, and couldn't be poked at too much. 
and had been an off-the-book subsidiary of the current American vice president's former company. Their track record in unfriendly countries was not something the government wanted to shine a light on, with an investigation into the employment histories of four scientists. Gene called each of us at 3.45 to tell us that the DOD delegation was here and had been seated in the conference room. They were 15 minutes early. It was either a good or bad omen, as it meant that they were either extremely interested in what we had to offer or simply wanted to get the meeting over with. As we ascended the stairs to the conference room, the delegation came into view. A few men in military uniform, one woman, perhaps in her mid to late thirties, similarly dressed, and two others in civilian garb. The woman was the head of the group, Colonel Henshaw, full bird colonel. One of the civilians was top aide to the Secretary of Defense, though I couldn't immediately tell which. As we opened the door and entered, Colonel Henshaw turned in her chair, assessing each of us as we strode toward the table. She didn't rise, so neither did the men to her left. One of the civilians did get up and move to greet us. Gentlemen and lady, I am Craig Longstride, aide to Secretary DeLue. James Christopher, James said, shaking Craig's outstretched hand. These are my friends and comrades of NAR Defense, Eric Bowman, Melinda Christopher, my wife, and Adam Green. A pleasure to meet y'all, Craig said, shaking our hands in turn. He somehow exuded at once an air of, I'm on your side, as well as, would you like to buy some manure? This, of course, is Colonel Henshaw, Craig said, motioning toward the colonel. She finally turned fully to face us. As she did, her awards came into view. Sharpshooter qualified. Paratrooper. Enough service stripes that she had to have been in the army from ROTC on. And enough service ribbons to indicate involvement not only in every coalition war battle, but also several I couldn't identify. For a good reason, as I found out later. They'd been black-opped after the fact. Also, there were ribbons for gold stars, silver stars, the Distinguished Service Cross, a double recipient, and finally, the Medal of Honor. Involuntarily, we all snapped a bit to attention at seeing that. Trying to restrain ourselves, remembered that we remembered that officially we hadn't been in the military, and certainly would admit to it in any case. A pleasure, ma'am, James said, shaking her hand while slightly lowering his head, a proper show of deference. Not at all. The pleasure is mine, Henshaw said at once dryly yet sincerely. Shall we begin? she asked, motioning at the table. I understand Nar has much to offer the DOD. Out of the corner of my eye I saw Melinda relax ever so slightly. The colonel, at least, had done something to put her at ease. As we walked around the short side of the table, Melinda circled wide and said just loud enough for us to hear, The colonel is interested but reserved. The secretary's aide is not and wants to rush things. They're at odds over this already. It was good information to have, but we all wondered how Melinda could know for sure. We hadn't time to find out. James began our presentation with a general history of NAR defense, including some of our most notable clients and products to date. Adam took over, sharing some of his department's most up-to-date vehicle designs and weaponry approaches. Melinda had brought samples of some materials her department were working on. One, an aerogel derivative, had been modified to be as projectile-resistant as scale armor while maintaining the weight of aerogel. My turn included highlights on the redundancy of our biosync hard drives. Absolute redundancy in four base security enabling a new level of security. Encryption two to the fourth times as complex as silica-based circuitry allowed. James wrapped things up with a couple of video clips of our weapons being used in the field. Computers and police cars as capable and secure as ever, but thinner and more power efficient than the most recent iPad. Non-lethal shotguns with hot swappable in-chamber rounds, and our proudest achievement to date, a battle vehicle built to run on literally any substance from water to sand via a fission-fusion process which also boasted one-inch armor that could withstand the same punishment as the best 18-inch contemporary armor plate. Very interesting, Mr. Pullman, the aide, Craig, said. Interesting indeed. If your products are so very useful and resilient, why haven't they gained widespread market penetration? 
Well, sir, many of these came out of R&D and into production within the last four months. Our facilities themselves were just expanded in November to help cope with increased demand. It took us a while to get here, but now we're up and running, ready for business. How does your equipment compare cost-wise? Henshaw asked, her eyes focused on Craig. She was asking the question, anticipating an answer Craig would not like. Very comparable, Melinda said. The proprietary materials we make are cost-effective and, in many cases, more so than conventional materials. As such, we can undersell our competitors by at least, uh, she trailed, looking to James. Seven percent, he quoted, quickly glancing at notes he had prepared. That would free up substantial budget room, Henshaw said at Craig, looking at Melinda, seeming to analyze her. It would still have to pass appropriations, and Senator McCollum isn't likely to cancel our current contracts on a whim. Melinda, right? Henshaw asked. That's right. While on some missions, I worked with a group of Marines. You remind me a bit of one of them. This could be bad. What assurances could your company offer, James? She said, her gaze still studying Melinda, in terms of demonstrations to help sway the Appropriations Committee. We would, of course, be willing to provide live fire field demonstrations. We have on-staff masters for all products. How soon could we get delivery for an initial order of, say, 500 battle vehicles? Uh, three months. Craig choked on the water he had suddenly seemed to need. Surely, Mr. Pullman, you didn't just promise an initial shipment of battle-ready vehicles in three months. Of course not, no, James retorted. I promised full shipment of all vehicles within three months. That's absurd, exclaimed Craig, his annoyance at the whole meeting beginning to show through. Henshaw leaned on the table. Her right shoulder turned toward Craig as she pointed at James. You giving it to me straight, Pullman? Seven percent undercutting current production costs in five hundred units in three months. Yes, ma'am. We have very sophisticated production techniques that drastically reduce production time. After confirmation of the contract, we would need one month to expand our facilities in order to handle the demand, then two more months to fulfill the order. Guaranteed. Henshaw made a quick fist with her right hand, withdrawing it across the tabletop. Craig, I'll need to talk to the appropriations XCOM and the secretary. Henshaw's statement toward Craig was less a request than an order. I caught one of Henshaw's aides pretending to study a document in his NAR defense folder as a smirk spread across his face. With due respect, Colonel, Craig said acidly, this needs consideration. Careful, deliberate consideration. We haven't even seen their products in live action yet. This matter must be brought before the Secretary prior to any action being taken. If hope and expectation lived together in a balloon that was being inflated, Craig was hugging the the balloon, squeezing it, trying to keep it from growing. His opposition to NAR defense was now palpable and crystal clear. He cleared his throat, straightening his tie, and zipped close his pad folio with the secretary's seal prominently on top, setting his hands on it. It was a show of his authority, and also a dick move. We are done here for today, he said, rising and leaving. Henshaw slowly swiveled in her seat and walked out after Craig. One of her aides hanging hung back. Tellingly, the information folders we had prepared for the group had been left by Craig and his aide, but not one remained from the colonel's end of the table. James, the aide said, shaking his hand, then each of ours. This could take a while. The chief's secretary of defense and the appropriations committee don't exactly see eye to eye right now. We will, I assure you, be in touch. The aide handed James a business card, the colonel's. We watched as the aide went to follow Henshaw out. As soon as the doors closed, James commented, Well, that was hopefully disappointing. Realization swept over his face, as it did all of ours. This had to be what Peter would have felt sweep over him when the cock crowed. Didn't Meng say, I began, and I'm finishing, that we'd be disappointed? 
how it may known. And what other surprises for us might he have in store? We looked out the conference room wall windows, not only watching the DOD delegation as they left, but also gazing, as Meng had, into the distance. That aid implied we wouldn't hear from them for a while, I said to no one in particular. Should we head back to the lab to work on our little projects? Group assent didn't need to be expressed, it was felt. As a unit, we turned and headed downstairs, James turning over Henshaw's card in his hand, as would a magician a playing card. As we walked through the entryway, James asked Melinda, What was your impression of the colonel? She seemed quite focused on you for a while there. She was focused on us, Melinda replied. You remind me of Marine I knew, echoed in my memory. It's actually a good thing that she was. It made her trust us for some reason. I don't know why. Oh? James pressed. I don't know how I know, Han. I just felt the comparison she made somehow engendered trust in us. It worked to an advantage in there. It's such a strong feeling. More than just a gut feeling. Like with Meng, it felt like the knowledge came from outside of me. Could it be part of the nanetic enhancement? Adam asked quietly as we entered the old research wing on the way to our labs. Two similar instances do not superpowers make, I said sarcastically. And yet, chimed in James. There was a point in it all, was his unspoken message. In fiddling, in finding the nanites not just alive but thriving, to find my own body operating at above tip-top shape, for Meng's prediction to be true and for Melinda to be experiencing something like empathetic sensory awareness or ESP and all happening more or less at once couldn't be simple coincidence. But there just wasn't enough evidence yet to convince us that everything truly was interconnected. In any event, we got back to work on the nanites. Late that night, well after the rest of the staff had gone home or to their on-campus quarters, the four of us gathered for supper. Nothing much new to report other than more questions. Adam had begun analyzing our old data in light of his simpler yet more predictive equations. Melinda was still sifting through the new base code, marveling at the accuracy and complexity of it all. James and I were still running tests on both the blood and tissue samples we had taken from me, including cheek swabs and small biopsies. We could feel that the road that lay ahead of us was to be a long one, but hoped it would be worth it in the end. We also hoped that Meng's return would bring some answers. The next day came too early, shining its bright midsummer brilliance far too brightly for sleep-deprived scientists to enjoy it. We met for simple breakfast in the company kitchen. I don't think I've ever felt this tired in my whole life, I said, a fork of pancakes stuck in the air halfway to my mouth. For some reason I was having sudden trouble remembering what I was supposed to do with the stack of syrupy carbohydrates on the end of my metal-tined utensil. We should probably try to sack out for at least a couple hours before anyone gets here, Melinda said, trying to rub the sleep from her eyes. I remembered what the pancakes were for, enjoying their warm syrupiness. Not a bad idea, James said, stretching. What we've got going right now needs time to react and grow anyway. Petri dish? Adam asked around his own mouthful of pancakes. I never did understand how he could love blackberry syrup as much as he did. Yeah, we're trying to see if the nanites remain active in cultured cells, as well as what effects they have in cultures of common illnesses. I mean, when was the last time you remember being sick? Day before the final test, I said, smack in the middle of a upper respiratory thing. More pancakes, lots of maple syrup, the grade B stuff that has some flavor to it. Cleared up the day afterward. I'd have to go back at least as far, added Adam. So yeah, there's the reasoning, James finished. And besides, I feel like Eric and I are just banging our heads up against a wall right now. Some time away could do wonders. 
Same here, Melinda said, her voice muffled as her head was buried in her nested arms on the table. Me too, Adam said, taking a swig of his coffee. Okay, James said, put your dishes away once you're done. See you later then, he added rising, grabbing his and Melinda's dishes and loading them into the kitchen's dishwasher. Come on, hun, he said, gently lifting Melinda to her feet. School bus here already? she asked dreamily. Yeah, the wheels on the bus go round and round, James sang as he led Melinda, her arm over his shoulder toward their quarter, their quarters. Is that helping at all at this point? I asked Adam, pointing at his coffee. Is what? he asked, looking into his still full cup. Is hot brown water? I chuckled a bit. Three late nights in a row, especially more sleepless than not nights, would wear down anyone. I stumbled up, put my dishes away, grabbed Adam's as he handed them to me, and did the same. I headed to my lab. True, my quarters had its own bed, but the cot in my office off my lap was so much closer. Hello, cot. It's me, Eric. Did you miss me? I asked, arriving in my office. I'm coming in for a landing. I gently lowered myself down, hearing the sweet sound of wooden joints creak their approval of my presence. I relaxed, letting the cot take all my weight. As I drifted off to sleep, I remembered strange dreams, or, or had them both, I suppose. Being above the NAR complex, I could see cars beginning to arrive, their occupants disembarking and heading from the parking lot. Out in the dorms, even as James and Melinda slept, two spoons in a drawer, others were waking and getting ready for the day. Jean arrived and began the task of calling contacts, checking meeting times and locations. I passed into another dream. I was on a frozen plane. In front of me opened a red circle and through it popped penguins wearing brown hats and holding gladius swords and one flipper as they waddled toward me. Another one came through, his hat yellow, his sword gleaming. He squawked in order and they all charged me. I passed into another dream. I was once again on the NAR campus. Looking around, I willed myself upward from the ground and took flight. Slowly and gracefully, I floated, opening the entrance door and willing myself up and around the atrium. Jean looked up at me briefly, returning to her work, as though nothing was amiss, seeing me floating so high off the floor. I came down low enough to begin flying through the corridors and hallways. As I passed each lab, I knew exactly what went on inside. In one, a team was testing a new bacon-powered toaster. In another, Melinda was attempting to combine jello pudding with titanium to make a bulletproof dessert. Oh, it looked delicious. Adam's high-yield explosives were proving useful. Not even the pancakes from this morning that he had put up as targets could withstand the blasts of blackberry syrup. I realized suddenly that I was dreaming. Instead of truly taking advantage of being lucid, I simply floated to my lab, found the cot in my office, laid down, and went back to sleep. I fully intended, in my dream sleep, to not wake up again until the orange juice on my desk stopped being so loud. I awoke, finding myself sitting bolt upright on the cot. My office phone was ringing. I really, really should have unplugged it before sacking out. Still in a haze, I reached toward my desk, fumbling a few times until I grabbed the handset. Hello? I mumbled through a sleep haze. Sorry to wake you, Eric, came a familiar voice. My mind raced to catch up to my fully awake body, my pulse pounding in my head. Hi, who's this? I said, trying to be as cordial as glancing up at the desk clock. A two hour nap's worth of sleep in three days would allow. Of course, came the reply, still groggy. Forgot about that. It's Meng. Oh, yeah. Hi, um, I sat up straighter, swinging my legs off the cot as if such a change in posture would make my mind more alert. What can I do for you? First of all, wake up. His words seemed to echo in my head, though instantly. Suddenly I was fully awake. Good, came Meng's voice as though he heard my mind click on. So Eric, 
I'm on my way back to Nara Defense with a few friends. We expect to be there in about, oh, three hours, right around noon. We'll grab something for all of you on the way in. Can we meet in your conference room at, say, noon 30? Yeah, that that should work, I replied. Why not just check in with Jean at the front? I was slightly bitter. My nap had been interrupted. Jean had been told no calls. Look, I called you directly. Never talked to Jean. Our extensions were never published, and I did not recall giving mine out. Ever. Mainly because I don't even know it offhand. The switchboard was set up to allow people to dial an extension before talking to Jean, though. But anyway, didn't want to wake James and Melinda just yet, so I called you. Can you get everyone ready for 1230? Yeah, shouldn't be a problem, Meng. All right, see you then. With that, he disconnected. I looked at my phone, seeing and saying aloud the extension on its label. One, two, three, four. It sounded like the combination of some idiot's luggage. My mind was going again, though, and I felt energy returning to my body. At the time, I figured that I'd hit my nap dead on, just enough to re-energize me. I called Jean to make sure both that someone else in the company hadn't booked the conference room as well as to inform her of our anticipated visitors. In the private residence suites on campus, there were much nicer ways to rouse someone than a ringing phone. Among them, James and Melinda's choice of birds tweeting. Logging into the company's remote control program with my admin account, I sent a text message to their in-unit computer and set it in motion to their wake-up program of bird songs. Adam's program was as much against my taste as was James and Melinda's, though for the opposite reason. His wake-up was blasting hair metal music until he got up. To him, too, I sent a terminal text and set his wake-up program in motion. I preferred symphonic music for my wake-up alarm. Within a minute, I received confirmation that both suites had awake occupants and that they would be making their way to the company's kitchen for more go-fuel, coffee. I headed there myself, still amazed at how alert and well-rested I felt. Walking there, time seemed to slow down. As I walked, I became aware of subtle details around me. A small pressure change overhead indicated that the air control system had just turned on, its motor creating brief suction as it began spinning. A light bulb just down the hall was showing its age, fluctuating, almost imperceptibly, between two close wavelengths of light. Click, 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 click came from around a corner ahead as someone turned the door handle. By its distance, it had to be Charlie working on my temporarily reassigned assignment. The condenser kicked in on the kitchen's fridge, but ran slow, sounding almost like a stalling plane. Then time rushed back to normal. I felt a rush of something. Blood? To my temples. The walk from my office to the kitchen took no more than a minute. Yet the walk this time had seemed to take at least five or ten. I filed the experience under the continued effects of sleep deprivation, noting, however, that I still felt completely rested. I went to the fridge, grabbed the coffee, closed the door, and was stopped short. There, in the stainless steel door, was a face. It didn't seem like it should be mine. There was no tiredness, no black marks under my eyes. Matter of fact, my face appeared the healthiest it had ever been. Despite extreme sleep deprivation, by my pallor I would assume myself to be well-rested and in perfect health. I filled the basket with coffee, replaced the grounds, filled the reservoir, and sat down at one of the tables as the coffee maker sang its wonderful symphony of creation. Adam was the first to get there. I looked up at him as he entered the kitchen, a slightly confused look playing on my face as I thought about what I had seen in my reflection. Wow, catnap was good to you, Adam commented, sitting across from me. Really? Really kind, he added, leaning in toward me. Yeah, just saw myself in the fridge's door. How do you feel? Well rested, recharged, and confused. James and Melinda walked in a couple minutes later to Adam checking my pupil reaction. What's shaking? James asked, stretching as he came into the kitchen. Come over here and look at him, Adam said, turning my head by my jaw so that I faced James. Wow, 
James said, gently grasping my jaw. No fatigue under the eyes. Clearest skin I've ever seen you have, too. How do you feel? Well rested, recharged, and increasingly confused and concerned, I replied. Melinda came to the table with four cups of coffee. How are the vitals? Pulse better than yesterday, I said. Pupil reaction normal. For anything else, we'd have to go down to a lab. You're looking fairly chipper too, Mel, I added. James and Adam turned and looked at her. You didn't have time to put on any makeup before we headed over, did you, hun? James asked. No. Why? Melinda responded. Because, James said, it looks like you did. Like Eric, you've no fatigue showing. How are you feeling? Melinda opened her mouth to answer but closed it again. She went through a mental self-check for a long minute before responding. Well, probably the best I've felt in quite a while. Rested? Refreshed? My heartbeat seems slower than normal. James, you have exam equipment in your lab? I asked. Yeah, let's take a look at you two, James said as he grabbed his cup of coffee and started for his lab. We headed right out of the kitchen, down the hallway, and through the tea intersection just past it. Down the base of the tea, Charlie was re-entering Lab H and waved. I had heard him leaving the lab earlier. Arriving at James's lab, Melinda and I took seats as James pulled out two sets of pressure cuffs, stethoscopes, and reaction hammers. We should get blood samples, too, he added. It made sense. If we were as tired as we should, our bodies should reflect by chemical imbalances in our blood. After taking, checking, and rechecking what they found, James's comment was simply, Fascinating. My heartbeat was at 45. Blood pressure, 109 over 70. Reaction times better than normal. Melinda's heart rate was 41. Blood pressure perfectly in line. Reaction times, like mine, better than normal. Neither of our blood showed anything uncommon for extremely fit athletes. Of course, we weren't. We were two lab rats who snuck in workouts when we could. Our bodies simply shouldn't have been in as good a shape as they were. Especially not after three nights of next to no sleep. I'm not sure what to say, James said, biting his lip and bracing himself as he leaned back on his desk. I am honestly at a loss here. It ain't right, Adam added, himself leaning against a counter, massaging his chin in thought. The nanites? I ventured. Only thing I could possibly think of would cause this. But then how? said Melinda. We programmed them to augment, even enhance the human condition, sure, but that seems like straight up altering it. And she was right. To make fatigue into rest was not a passive action. If being rested was a result of an anemic intervention, then the nanites had become active participants in their symbiotic experience. We need more data, James seemed to muse at his desktop. We need to run more tests. We have to understand exactly what the nanites have grown capable of. And that, Melinda added, is best found in their code. Why don't we go and focus on that for now? After all, your culture shouldn't be ready yet, right? That's right, I responded. Let's grab our mobile computers and head to the conference room. Jean reserved it for us for the rest of today anyway. At least we won't necessarily have to stop when Meng and company show up. Meng's offer of food suddenly pushed itself back to the front of my consciousness. Bring us something to eat, FYI. Darn nice of them. Adam yawned, his fatigue still holding him hostage. Okay, so grab your laptops. Melinda, dump the code onto a thumb drive and we'll meet up in the conference room, James said. It had started out a gloomy, foggy day. But as Adam, the last to arrive, finally got to the conference room, the gloom had burned off. A few early showers had added a sheen to the trees and left puddles on the pavement that the sun shone off of brilliantly. In the conference room, light poured in from all sides, creating an artificial feeling of pending enlightenment. We sat, hunched over our workstations in that penetrating brightness, our backs hunched and eyes searching. The code, having been written by the nanite hive mind, would have been nearly impossible to decipher at first glance had Melinda not brought printed code keys along. 
Single or double letter variables stood for such complex ideas as vitamin D levels present and average throughout the body, and as simple as nerve cell. We each poured over the code, trying to discern its purpose. What was especially hard was the circularity of some of the code. Some subroutines seemed to call others, which in turn simultaneously called the original, as well as part of another, ultimately returning the information to a third, seemingly unrelated subroutine. Time did pass quickly as, apparently, out of nowhere, the comm hub center table chimed for attention. Go ahead, James called toward it. Sir, came Jeannie's voice. Her use of proper titles rather than surname showed a level of discomfort. Meng Tao is back along with three more people. Shall I let them up? James glanced at the time, then quipped. Only if they brought food. That we did, old friend, came Meng's reply through the comm center. Then sure, they can come up, James went, waited at the conference room's doors and held them open as Meng and his crew entered. Please, take a seat, everyone. In a minute, replied Meng. First, food. James, you and Adam look absolutely haggard. Anyway, Jacob Bluefinger for Eric, Meng said, handing me a sandwich. Italian trio for Adam. Classic BLT for James and, not least... A classic with banana peppers for Mel. Meng finished handing out the subs, went to the bar, poured himself a Johnny Walker green on the rocks. Turning and leaning on the bar, he swirled the drink, grinned, gazed at each of us individually, looked at his crew seated on the other end of the table and said, So? Didn't I tell you? Returning his his gaze to James, he said simply, So? We have a lot to talk about. Shall we begin? All right. So that was chapter 11 of Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars. That was, obviously, a longer chapter. Thank you for staying with me through all of that. And again, hopefully, uh, the inflections, the voices I did, helped you while listening to this chapter. If you enjoyed this chapter, if you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoyed any of the episodes, in fact, I would encourage you to head over to my website, narclaninc.com. That's www.narclaninc.com. There you can find links to my social media sites. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube, still catching up on some of the other ones because I don't use them, but Eventually, if I get those, they will be linked out there as well. If you are really enjoying this podcast, you can head over to my Patreon account. Patreon is kind of like an ongoing Kickstarter campaign where you can pledge a certain amount of money either per month and cap it off that way or per episode, and you can help fund this podcast going into the future. But if you're listening to this podcast and you're enjoying it, what I could really Uh, stand to have from you is some feedback you know find me on facebook find me on twitter tell me what you thought of whichever episode you listened to most recently or even better yet share this podcast with a friend help me spread this podcast this story to other people that i would appreciate above all else but in the meantime i have kept you long enough this particular recording wow over an hour Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for coming back week after week for this podcast. This was uh, episode 10, chapter 11, Discovery of Success from my first book, Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars. Have a good day, weekend, night, morning, whatever it is for you, and we will see you next time.